Hi, my name is Patricia Robayo. I'm producer with WJFF Radio Catskill, and welcome to another edition of the Reporters Roundtable. Today, I'm joined by journalist Liam Mayo from the River Reporter, Joseph Abraham from the Sullivan County Democrat, and Philip Pantuso from the Times Union. The Reporters Roundtable is a podcast. Search for WJFF, the Reporters Roundtable, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Liam from the River Reporter, let's start with you. You've been following the Skinner's Falls Bridge for a while. You spoke about it on the local edition and here on the Reporters Roundtable. What is the latest on that project? Yeah, so the latest on the Skinner's Falls Bridge is they released a final purpose and needs document along with a document responding to public comments on the previous draft purpose and need document. They've been putting this document together for the past couple of months. Um, I believe since late 2021, and the goal is to determine what purposes and needs a bridge at the Skinner's Falls location needs to um, fulfill. So does it need to have emergency vehicles crossing? Does it need to have big trucks crossing? Um, And based on whatever purpose and need the bridge needs to fulfill, then that will determine or that will help guide what kind of bridge ends up being in that place? Will it be will the current historic bridge be torn down and replaced with a sort of heavier weight, um, more higher capacity bridge, or will the historic bridge that is there be rehabilitated and put back into service? It's been out of service since I believe it failed a safety inspection in 2019. Um, <clears throat> Throughout this process, people have been really concerned about the potential for the bridge to be torn down. There are a lot of local advocates who are very focused on the bridge as a historic thing. And um, they are, um, it's specifically a Baltimore Trust Bridge. I believe it's one of only a few remaining. Um, so there, it has a claim to historic value and people have been worried that PennDOT isn't taking the bridge's historic nature seriously enough in its considerations about bridge alternatives. And this latest purpose and need document, and more specifically the comments where PennDOT's responding to people's concerns is kind of the clearest glimpse we've gotten so far into what PennDOT is thinking as it's been putting stuff out about the bridge. It's been a little less than transparent so far, so we're getting a bit more insight right now. And They responded to a lot of people's comments by saying, hey, this is not the time to be thinking about that. Uh, They said, hey, we aren't considering historic value in this purpose and need document. It's very specifically about transportation needs. Uh, We're not abandoning the idea of rehabilitating the bridge, but we can't consider that in this specific document. That's going to be a further step in the process. Um, PennDOT also said that a couple of the things people had taken umbrage to um, aren't actually as bad as people thought. There were certain uh, needs that PennDOT had, specifically for emergency vehicles, where people had said, hey, if you say that this is a need for the bridge, then you're already saying that you have to replace the bridge because the current bridge that is there could never do the things you're asking it to do. And PennDOT sort of clarified that, well, when we say emergency vehicles, that could be like a lead car that goes across the bridge. It doesn't have to be a full 31 ton fire truck. It could be a smaller vehicle that could fit the existing bridge. Um, So 
by saying emergency vehicles. We are not um, precluding the fact that we could restore the bridge. And there were a couple of other points like that. And overall, PennDOT was saying more clearly than they really have before that we're still considering rehabilitating this bridge and preserving its historic nature. But now is not the time to talk about this. We're going to have, I believe, a historic uh, bridge. I'm forgetting the exact name of it. It's a historic bridge rehabilitation analysis as the next step to talk a little bit more about. So it's uh, potentially good news for people who want to see the bridge restored. Um, I think people are still skeptical from what I've been hearing. People are making reference to a similar bridge down in Pond Eddy, where I believe a historic bridge was ultimately replaced. Um, so it's PennDOT giving the nod to the rehabilitation alternative while still not committing itself on where has there been any kind of talks about leaving the old bridge and just building a new bridge next to it and maybe leaving the old bridge sort of as, as a walking path? That has been done here in Fallsburg. Uh, there is a bridge near near Glenwild where there is a, a bridge that's that's been a trust bridge, not as big as the other one, the Skinner's Falls Bridge, but is still left there with a new bridge right next to it. Um, that's not an alternative I've heard so far. I think... Um, one of the questions that gets resolved in the purpose and need document is, hey, does there need to be a bridge in this location at all? Is there enough traffic in this location to make it so that people have to use a bridge here rather than going 10 minutes upriver to Calico or 10 minutes downriver to Marrowsburg? And I think the purpose and need document does answer that yes. So I think they're going to do something to get that bridge back working. But I, I guess in theory, they could just put a bigger bridge right next to it. So um, I'll keep an eye out for if they start talking. About now, that. keeping our eye on the Upper Delaware, there is a subcommittee that has recently formed to talk about the regulations of cell phone towers along the scenic Upper Delaware River. Liam, has there are there any current projects in the works now, or are they just trying to figure out the regulations first? So they're not looking at any locations specifically. Um, this came up before the Upper Delaware Council, which is a body that regulates happenings along the Upper Delaware River. And it sort of guides developments in the area in conjunction with the National Park Service. And the council was considering a set of zoning regulations from the town of Tustin, which the town of Tustin is redoing its zoning. And one of the things it wanted to include was the possibility for cell towers in certain districts along the river. The Upper Delaware Council said, hey, we haven't looked at this for a while. Um, I believe the last time it came up was a couple of years ago at this point. Um, and the council reviewed its regulations and determined that, according to its own precedents, it can't allow cell towers along the river. Uh, previous generations of council leadership had said, we're not allowing cell towers along the river. And um, that had been that. So Tustin ended up just taking that use out of its zoning laws. Uh, so it, there's no like immediate implications of that. But now that the conversation had been raised, the Upper Delaware Council started thinking about uh, safety along the river uh, and the need for people to call for help in emergencies. 
and they said, hey, well, this guiding document that we are uh, deriving our regulations from, the river management plan, does have regulations in here about the scenic attributes of the river, which in theory would prohibit cell tower usage, but it also does have um, a mandate in there that we need to protect safety along the river. So in weighing those two, the council decided it's time to start thinking about putting cell towers along the river, or at least starting to review our own regulations so that the next time someone comes to us and says, hey, we want to put a cell tower in along the river, we have regulations in place to make that happen. So um, the council has formed a subcommittee to review those regulations and to ultimately issue a recommendation or a position paper allowing for cell towers along the river and determining how you would regulate that. Um, and time will tell how that gets received by people along the upper Delaware. We uh, included a little poll with our online article about this. And so far uh, we've got 64% of people with 23 votes who want to see cell service in the upper Delaware and 36% uh, of people with 13 votes who are worried about uh, cell towers and they don't want them there. So it's sort of a contentious issue. There have already been people showing up at Upper Delaware Council meetings saying, hey, um, we're concerned about the health and scenic ramifications of cell towers in this area. So uh, that subcommittee has its work cut out for it. And um, it is probably going to move at the speed of government. So I don't expect to see cell towers going up in the Upper Delaware River for years and years yet to come, but it's sort of the early whisperings of a change of policy that could ultimately lead to cell towers along the river. Yes, definitely. Now let's move on to you, Joe, uh, Joseph Abraham, the managing editor for the Sullivan County Democrat. Redistricting, redrawing of the lines of congressional maps on state Senate, on the Assembly, has been sort of the hot topic recently. This is also coming down to the hyper-local level and the redrawing of the maps of the legislature, of the Sullivan County legislature. And I, I do enjoy your headline you had recently was redistricting rumble. Uh, what can you tell us about the latest on the redrawing of the maps and why was there a sort of a heated debate about it? Yeah, well, I don't think it comes to surprise to anyone that redistricting is not exactly a kumbaya topic. I don't think it's ever really ever went nicely. I don't think I've ever seen a redistricting process where the two sides, you know, have have uh, been happy all at all points. But uh, Sullivan County, uh, just to give some some background, they contracted with Dave Heller of Main Street Communications. I believe he's based in Iowa. Um, over in the spring to create three map-based proposals for redistricting. And they wanted those proposals by mid-June. Uh, at that time, or in the spring, chairman of the legislature, Rob Doherty, had said that they would be put out to the public and people would have a month to look at them and uh, make comments. And then they planned on voting for them uh, during the end of the July meetings. So that's been uh, something he's been um, sort of a timeline he's stated repeatedly over the last couple months. Uh, the deadline to which they actually have to vote 
on a new map uh, and choose one is January. So there are about six months remaining in that for when they have to get something done. So the three maps came out. Uh, legislators uh, were very keen on not splitting up towns and villages was one of the things they told the map maker to do. And for those listening, you know, I, I can't really explain the fine tooth in the weeds redistricting. Uh, but essentially, there's certain parameters that people have to stay in with redistricting maps. And population changes obviously play a large role. Um, you know, like, for example, George Conklin's district out um, on the western side of the county is going to get larger. So it's it's most likely he's going to go from Fremont, it goes down to Tustin in most of the maps presented. Uh, whereas Liberty, Fallsburg, uh, those areas which saw a lot of population growth over the last 10 years, those districts are going to get smaller because each district can only represent a certain you know percentage of the population. So uh, that's 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 part of it uh, is is the not splitting up towns was a big deal that they had. And so now that they've had the maps, uh, last week's legislature meeting, um, at the end of planning, I'll just say the planning committee because it has like fifteen different names on the, on that committee, but. Uh, end of the day, really, it was a pretty quiet laid back day, and someone asked a question about the maps, and it led into this whole discussion. Ira Steingart, who's the minority leader uh, on the legislature, uh, representing the uh, two other Democrats, and um, Joe Perillo, who's a Republican, has also sided with them on a lot of issues against Chairman Rob Doherty and, and um, Alan Sorensen, George Conklin, Michael Brooks, and Nick Salamone. And Ira said that, you know, in the beginning of this process, they said that they didn't want this uh, gentleman who made the maps to have contact with any legislators. They didn't want any, uh, and that he was only supposed to have contact with Josh Potosik, the county manager. Uh, and I think Chris Knapp as well, who does like um, the, 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 I don't know, the, the maps that are on like the county website, tax maps and stuff. He does like the, the um, technical side. So it's okay for them to ask, um, I believe, for him to be asked. Him and Josh are the only two that they've stated publicly have had conversations because he had to help with certain things with the districts, technically. Um, but yeah, so Ira questioned whether or not uh, things played out the way they said it should play out. And he suggested asking the county attorney to go to the map maker and ask for an affidavit to see who from the county he actually spoke with during the process because Ira claimed that some of the things they said, like not splitting towns, was the way was did come out that way in some of the districts presented in the map options, but not in others. So he claimed it wasn't exactly what the map maker said he was going to do. So Ira wanted to know about, you know, that's what Ira had suggested, said he wasn't trying to accuse anyone, to which Chairman Rob Doherty said asking for an affidavit seems a little accusatory. Um, and, and that side, which is Ira Steingart, Joe Perillo, Nadia Reich, Louis Alvarez, you know, their side has been saying that. You know, we have till January. Let's take our time here. Let's see if we can make everybody happy, which then many people repeated. There's no way really that anyone's going to be 100 percent happy with the maps. Nothing like that ever really comes to be with this process. But, you know, they stated uh, that and, and they went back and forth, whereas Rob was saying, you know, Doherty, that we've been saying for four months now that this was what we were going to do as far as our timeline. And uh, and he was also insisting that they wouldn't tweak the maps because there was some talk on the other side about, you know, changes here or there. And I even said that he wouldn't mind spending additional monies if it meant the creation of a map that 
you know, had was better improved and more people had issues with. And Rob insisted that they weren't going to tweak anything because that's what the professional map maker says is the best way to redistrict of these three options. So that ultimately was uh, led to a pretty much a back and forth between the two. Um, you know, in my article, it stated that, you know, that because Rob had said at the meeting that the voting on the maps would be on executive and full board on J July 21st. I've heard rumblings that now the legislature is going to hold a public hearing in August. And then at that point, they would vote afterwards. So it's not official yet. They haven't took any action to set a public hearing in August, but that's just what I'm hearing as an update. So until that happens, we'll just go under the assumption that it might be on July 21st agenda. So that's essentially what's happening with redistricting. Um, you know, like I said, when Ira was critical of um, that was like, you know, saying to Rob that with the whole voting and everything, uh, you know, let people see that, you know, you're not looking for a better solution. And then Rob was claiming that, you know, that this process, putting all three maps out was a better process than how legislators did it 10 years ago, which is they only put one map out to the public. Um, so that's sort of where we're at, but there'll be more on it because uh, this is only the beginning. Right. Now, I guess I guess the putting up three maps it was an effort to try to be transparent. Was that sort of the the idea behind that? Yeah, it was it was to put all the maps because the, the Democrat majority 10 years ago, um, you know, Doherty, who's Republican, has stated, you know, they only let one map be out to the public and work, you know, that the, the people could see. There were changes I've heard that they made to it once the one map was put out there. But, you know, he's claiming well, this is more transparent. We're putting out all three maps out to the public. Everyone's seeing the same thing we're seeing. And, you know, they'll have an opportunity to weigh in before the vote. So, yes, that that's that's the point he was um, getting at. Neversink so. is might have a new development there from a family who's owned the property uh, for a long time. Uh, nothing has been done with this particular piece of property in the Neversink area. But now they want to sort of develop it. I heard in the past it was once going to be developed as sort of a ski resort. And the Carolands, is that the way I'm pronouncing it right? Carolands? Yeah, Carolands. Carolands was one, once was going to be a ski resort, but now I guess the the family members who own still own the property want to develop it to something else or bring back the ski resort. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so uh, 60 years ago, uh, Jonathan Liedersdorf, I hope I said his name right, who's the developer of the property, his grandfather purchased it with the hopes of making it a ski resort. Uh, however, they were denied a liquor license because the town of Neversink 60 years ago was a dry town. Um, so at that point, they didn't pursue the project, but it stayed in the family for six decades. They've been maintaining the land. And with everything sort of happening with uh, people leaving the cities to go to the countryside, you know, post COVID, uh, they, um, you know, the developer felt that now was a good time to, you know, keep up with the family legacy and see what they could do with this land. Um, what he would like to do, and by the way, this developer has done projects all over the world. Um, the most recent he did was called Six Senses Ibiza. It's um, a hotel resort sort of thing out um, there. And it's kind of around sustainability and, uh, and health are really kind of the focal points of it. Uh, and so he's hoping there's two options sort of on the table here. What he would like is to get a zoning change from the town, which would allow them to have an overlay uh, of the zoning, which would allow for a conservation based development. Um, in this model, he would only develop about 25% of the property or a little less than that. 
And the other 75% would be left as open space. They put in trails and cross-country skiing. And, um, and that part of the, the property would be able, the public would be able to use it and, and that sort of thing. That's his desired goal. The, um, uh, the other side, the other option is if the town doesn't do it, he stated that he's going to propose a 297 single lot uh, development residential lot development subdivision, which would develop that land and would be, there'd be no open space left. That that land, all the open space that would be there in that 3,150 acre property would be privatized between the homeowners. There. So those are essentially the two options presented um, or that are kind of out there. Um, so yeah, and, and a lot of the people in the option he prefers, they would be people that live there year round, but there would be other parts of it too, both sort of, uh, there's more information on the town website with some pictures and stuff or presentations, but um, that's essentially the two sort of things being proposed. Uh, there was a public hearing held last night uh, so that the developer could give a presentation to members of the public. They could then weigh in on the project and uh, I had a uh, editor, Matt Shortall was at that. Um, I have not read his story on it yet, but, what I gathered from my conversation with him is that the majority of the people present, and it was over 60 or so people that did speak at the meeting were opposed to the project. Um, we've gotten some letters to the editor as well. Some people have stated environmental concerns, um, among other issues. So this will be something to watch and see. Um, no decision has been made yet um, as far as what they're doing. The town Everson told me they've hired outside attorneys and planners to help them kind of through the project uh, and that at this point they were being open-minded and listening to the concerns of the developer as well as the community so that's sort of what happened what's happening in never thinking that's a pretty significant property you know it's with it, size and scope so it will be something to watch and my history with reporting on planning boards and government I know that this process could take a very long time, and it sounds like it's at very early stages of the, the sort of the timeline. Because actually, that was my next question: was is there a timeline on when this project looks to be completed? Yeah, the town will uh, will take a look um, at it. I mean, they there is a project review timeline. I don't know it like the back of my hand. It is available on the town site, um, but you know. We've seen this with many other projects in the county. I mean, we're, we live in a very beautiful place, a very naturey place. And just like, you know, Liam was talking about all the stuff that's, you know, people look at, at the river and everything like that. Uh, there's always a fine line and a, and a kind of a internal back and forth that occurs with development versus making sure that we do the best that we can to preserve what's here in conservation. So. So that'll have to be kind of worked out here and, and we'll see where it comes. But this is more, this is just the beginning of this process. So, Thank you so much for that, Joe. Now let's turn to Philip Pontuso from the Times Union. Philip, we just had a primary here in Sullivan County. Uh, there wasn't any kind of uh, assembly or state senate uh, primaries. Uh, we just dealt with the governor and lieutenant governor, but in your area, in the 103rd Assembly District, there was an upset. What can you tell us about that? It was an upset. So across the board, um, the it was a pretty bad night for progressive challengers to incumbent Democrats. The one exception was in the 103rd Assembly District, which is 
encompasses most most of Ulster County except for the rural parts um, where it borders Sullivan County. And there, um, a, a climate activist um, named Sarah Hanna Shrestha, who was running with uh, Democratic Socialists of America backing, she upset the longtime incumbent Kevin Cahill, who had represented the district for 26 of 30 years. So this this district doesn't really encompass much of the listenership for Radio Catskill. So why why does it matter to your listeners? I think there's a couple of larger takeaways here. The first is that um, Shrestha had has has kind of been a known quantity in climate organizing sort of throughout the Hudson Valley and Catskills for the last half decade or so. Probably the most viable campaign that she worked on was uh, a campaign in 2019 and 2020 uh, called the Stop Dan Scammer Coalition, which um, organized to prevent the approval of a new permit that would allow the Dan Scammer power plant to expand uh, on the Hudson River in the right outside of, of Newburgh. Um, and her campaign, uh, the main component of her platform were these two climate bills, uh, the Build Public Renewables Act, um, which would empower NYSERDA to build renewable power projects and compete with private solar and wind developers and the All-Electric Building Act, which would start phasing out fossil fuel use statewide in new buildings starting in 2024. Um, and so that's obviously, obviously the state's ability to meet its climate goals is going to be hugely determined by the next legislature that sat um, the new assembly members that are coming in, uh, the new senators um, that really didn't make much progress on that front. In this past year, and some of the some of the some of those bills will really deal with with rural climate issues um, and the ability of the state and of communities in rural areas to combat the worst effects of climate change. So, her win could perhaps be a bellwether for at least this region's appetite for um, for more progress. I think on on climate policy, but the I think. Maybe even the more interesting story here is I'd mentioned earlier that she was running with the backing of the Democratic Socialists of America. She's one of 13 um, Democratic Socialists who are running for office uh, in New York this year. There are, I believe, is nine or eight assembly members and or nine assembly members and um, four state senators. Um, the Senate, the senators obviously. Uh, we won't know their fate until at least August. Um, but as I mentioned, she was the only one of this slate of DSA for the many candidates to win. And so it was really the first kind of, um, her campaign was the sort of first of a type of primary challenge that we've seen play out in a lot of areas across the country, including in New York City, where you have someone who's kind of drafted from the like the organizer activist community to primary an incumbent Democrat whom the uh, the progressive wing of the party sees as perhaps a barrier to more radical change legislatively, um, and run a campaign that makes it about these kind of huge 
almost existential issues, not only climate, but she ran um, really on housing and on healthcare and this overall kind of vision about trying to make the future just more inclusive and more beautiful for people. Um, and pulling in a lot of, of money and a lot of high powered uh, endorsements. She, um, Cynthia Nixon, the former um, gubernatorial candidate and Sex in the City star, uh, canvassed with her. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez endorsed her. Um, and she was able to mobilize uh, a huge kind of grassroots support, which we, um, me and, and uh, a freelancer, my, my former colleague at the River Newsroom, Lisa Harris, detailed in a story that we published late last week, kind of looking at how they were able to pull off this upset. And so it's, it's, I'm kind of wondering if this is a new, this is the first type of, this is the first time that this type of campaign has been successful um, in, in the mid Hudson Valley. Um, and, you know, it, it, it may be a bellwether for future campaigns to run this more progressive playbook, especially as um, some of the demographics shift in the region. Now, Shrestha will tell you, and, and she's right, that the majority of her supporters were, were, old, were older supporters. I think something like 75% of her vote came from people age 50 and above. So she really pushes back against the demographic kind of destiny argument there. But certainly a huge number of her campaign volunteers and canvassers um, were, young, were younger folks and that, that had that's led to some chatter among, uh, among both locals in, in this district and in some of the local press about whether or not, um, you know, this is like the, the, the Brooklynization of politics um, following the kind of cultural Brooklynization of, of the Hudson Valley. I, um, I don't know that that argument holds too much water, but certainly it's something um, that a lot of people are, are thinking about. And it's an argument that um, seems to hold water with some people anyway. It seems like the progressive Democrats have a large grassroots following. There's, there's a lot of you know attraction with a lot of big names like AOC, but doesn't seem to always translate at the polls. Do you find that true in your reporting? Um, yeah, I mean, that was certainly the case um, with this primary. And in general, I think the, um, the, the online and social media impact of the, of the progressive wing of the party is probably weighs a little heavier than the, or is larger than the folks who turn up to the polls. But, um, but uh, you know, I really think the story of why they, why Shrestha's campaign was able to win was just the, the very expensive ground game. Uh, uh, she told me that their campaign knocked on more than 32,000 doors in the district. And um, one of the political action committees that was supporting them sent out mailers and ran digital ads and made direct voter contacts by canvassing or by phone with more than half the population of the district. Um, and I think conversely, but relatedly, um, it, it didn't seem like uh, the incumbent, Kevin Cahill, really took the challenge all that seriously until uh, about a month ago. So um, he was definitely playing catch up in terms of the, the sort of ground game element of the campaign. Right. And uh, keeping on uh, on elections, uh, a um, Ulster County 14-year-old has gone viral with his uh, 
sticker that he submitted into a I voted sticker contest in Osa County. What can you tell us about that? Well, first, let me describe the sticker. It's it's uh, it looks like a spider with the head on it, um, googly eyes, red, uh, some uh, multicolored hair, different color teeth, and it says I voted, and it's a little scary. But uh, what can you tell us about this viral? Uh, I vote contest. Uh, I, yeah, I, I like that description. Um, I went with uh, in in our story about this last week that it's uh, it's teeth look like chiclets and it was a a, a quirky multicolored monster with a humanoid head, blood bloodshot bug eyes, and spider like legs. Uh, so yeah, this this thing is crazy. Um, so Ulster County, in an effort, I think this began in twenty twenty or no twenty twenty one. In an effort to engage young people um, before they're old enough to vote, the County Board of Elections launched this sticker contest and it's open to all 13 to 18 year olds who live in the county to submit designs um, for the I voted stickers that are handed out on election days. Um, it's a, you know, it's an anyone can vote um, in the, in the sticker contest, which is which is a big story here, <laughs> because this one um, this one has gone super viral. Um, this the, you know there are six finalists. Uh, five of them are what you might describe as uh, as um, more classically patriotic. Perhaps um, there's one with uh, with a bald eagle. There's one with the U.S. Capitol. Um, you know they all they all say I voted. But uh, yeah, the runaway winner um, as of this date is, uh, is this design th that you so eloquently described just a couple of minutes ago. And it's submitted by this 14 year old from Marbletown who will start high school in the fall. Um, he basically just entered it on a, on a whim. Um, and it was a kind of an immediate favorite among the board of elections officials one of whom the Democratic commissioner actually did this, said that she is um, considering getting a tattoo of it, which um, I think will necessitate a follow-up story if and when that happens. Um, the, uh, the, I'm not sure how it first started going viral. We published a story on it late last week that was the, uh, the most read story um, in the entire Times Union for a day or two. Um, other local media have covered it, but in the last couple of days, uh, the New York Times has done the story, Washington Post has done the story, uh, CBS uh, this morning, the morning show on CBS uh, did a little feature on it. And um, as, of, as of right now, it has a hundred, there are 188,000 votes uh, in this sticker contest. It has 176,000 of them. So about 93%. And uh, that's, uh, that is not only uh, many more people than live in Ulster County. It's I, it's I, I believe like at least three times as many people uh, as voted <laughs> in the actual last election. So um, so this thing is this thing is going crazy, and it's you know it's not just it's not just a feel good story. I do think that um, it's reflective of a couple of other things. Like that we had a couple of people. If you just search the comments on Twitter about this, like you'll see people say that like the sticker speaks to them because it um, is reflective of how, you know, how they feel about democracy right now. The, the, uh, the Ulster County legislator, Abe Uchitel, tweeted, 
tweeted it out in, in encouraging people to vote, saying democracy is in crisis. With your help, Ulster County can get the I voted sticker for which this moment calls. Um, and also that, you know, the Board of Elections is, is optimistic that this is going to increase voter turnout because the only way you can get one of these stickers, uh, unless you tattoo it on your body, is by coming to the to the polls and casting a vote. So um, we'll have to, we, you know, we'll have to see what the voter turnout is like in in August, and in you know, in, in a late-breaking update to this, too, the uh, the Board of Elections said just uh, just on uh, Tuesday of this week that any of the six finalists who receive more than fifteen hundred votes will be printed for the August twenty-third primary, which um, which includes all but two of the stickers right now. So I would encourage everyone to go out and vote for the for the stickers that uh, don't have fifteen hundred votes yet. Um, because it made me feel, honestly, the runaway success of the uh, multicolored spider monster has made me feel a little bit bad for these other um, these other teens who are just doing their best to engage civically. So they're all they'll all get their stickers printed at the end. Everybody's a winner, so that's that's the most important part. And it's like, hey, this becomes a collector's item. Might get people out to vote to get their sticker to get their 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 spider colored head uh multicolored teeth bug-eyed thing and say that says i voted it could become you know like a collector's item so uh, i i say anything that gets people out to vote and 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 being involved in the process it's a sort of i could see it is as a win definitely keep us updated on this and, and definitely see uh, uh and get him get our hands on an actual sticker so uh that'd be great Patricia, I, I, Patricia, I promise I will stay on the Ulster County I voted sticker beat for you yes, and all, yes. your, all your listeners. That's, that has to be that's, that's top priority there. So, and anyone, and the person gets a tattoo, that's even breaking news. That's more, you know. So for sure, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll have to call in immediately. Yeah, well, what a bad mistake that would be. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to the Reporters Roundtable on Radio Chat Skill. I've been your host, Patricia Robio. Today, we will join with journalist Leah Mayo of The River Reporter, Joseph Abraham of the Sullivan County Democrat, and Philip Pontuso from The Times Union, letting us know what's happening in our area. And remember that The Reporter's Roundtable is a podcast. So if you ever miss a show, you can listen to our podcast. You can find us on WJFFradio.org's podcast page, or you can search for us on WJFF, The Reporters Roundtable, wherever you've listened to your favorite podcast. Again, I'm Patricia Robaro, your host for The Reporters Roundtable for July. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next month. Mm-hmm.